Hello, and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Natalie Chavis-Fisher. Natalie is an attorney in foster care adoption law, an advocate, an author, and a documentarian based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Well, welcome, Natalie. I am so glad that you could participate in our podcast series. How are you doing today? Hi, Lynn. I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. Oh, well, thank you. And you're so welcome. I'm excited to hear about what it is that you do. But first, let me ask you the question I ask all of my guests first. Could you please share a little bit about yourself and how is it that you are connected with the foster care system to begin with? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah, so I'm a third generation attorney who was raised really in a family of people who advocate for rights, whether it's child welfare, criminal justice, civil rights, or just plain human rights. My grandmother informally fostered many, many children, and my aunt was a formal foster parent in California. So I grew up with tons of foster cousins. And so it was just a normal thing for me. It's, I didn't know that it was different. And so foster care became near and dear to my heart. So I've practiced foster care adoption law for over about 20 years in the state of Indiana. And to help spread the message, you know, I do my part to bring awareness and help stigmatize foster care, particularly as it relates to children aging out of the system. And you know, I wrote a short novel with a big impact. The first, and it's a series of three, the first one has been published. That child is not yet aged out, but by the time the second book comes, he will have aged out of the system. And I just created a documentary where we do have a segment on a particular child welfare organization called Children's Bureau who helps children who are aging out of the system. Oh, okay. What are the titles of these? Just so I can share that not only with the listeners, but Aging Out Institute has a page where we list things like books and movies that are related to young people aging out of foster care. And I would love to add those. Sure. So the book is called Adopting Tiger. And it can be found on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. And the main character in segment one hasn't aged out yet, but he will in segment two. So, you know, it's easy to follow. So it's good to get that foundational story. And then the documentary is called Foster Care Perfect Imperfection. And you can Google it and you certainly can. It can be rented or bought on Vimeo. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment. Thank you for sharing that. Obviously, the interest in foster care, you've explained where that comes from. When And and this is just strictly because I have no idea how this works. When you're going into the legal profession and you want to do something like foster care adoption law, what do you need to do to build that specialty? Well, I'll tell you what happened with me. So, you know, it was time for me to practice law and I started working for my father and he had five foster care adoption cases. And my father kind of believes, you know, listen, the best way to get trained is just to get your hands dirty. I'm going to throw you out there. You're going to sink or swim. You decide. So he gave me five foster care cases and I figured them out and I absolutely adored them. I then made 99% of my practice foster care adoptions. One way is to sort of inherit it through a private practice. Another way is to work for child welfare. I mean, you know, a lot of lawyers sort of will work for child welfare first, then go out on their own, or they then will become a public defender, or they then will be an attorney for a CASA entity, you know, and a lot of lawyers get exposures in all of the different areas. And then, you know, they just are able to become the best advocate possible. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now, I know that you do uh, several different things besides the great work you do in the field of law. Let me ask you, what is it that you do to help young people who are aging out of foster care and looking to go out on their own? 
Yeah. So a lot of my clients actually are, you know, seeking guardianships over the foster babies who are not, or the foster really adults or teenagers who are not going to be adopted. So that's kind of where I come into play. So I will help with those guardianships and then I will help connect them with different service providers. So I talked a little bit about the Children's Bureau. They have a phenomenal independent living program that I just hold in high, high regard. And so they help with budgeting, you know, certainly finding an apartment. Uh, One of my kiddos graduated from high school early. She graduated at 17 and through the program and through her own efforts, she was able to obtain more scholarship dollars for college than she could use. So I just like, you know, linking, you know, because foster kids, I mean, they're kids. They're just as smart as any other kid, you know, and sometimes they're much more resilient. So there's a lot of success to be had. So I just like to find those areas where I can help link and help make them successful, contribute anyway. It's it's up to them. Wow, that's fantastic. And how long have you been doing this kind of work? About 20 years. I started June 2000. So yeah, almost exactly 20 years. (laughs) But who's counting, right? (laughs) Who's counting? That's right. Who's counting? (laughs) That's wonderful. And you're in Indiana? So, yeah, my practice is in Indiana, but my platforms are nationwide. Okay. Um, Yeah. And when you say platforms, help us understand, you know, what is it that you're doing in that area? Is it advocacy? So it's all advocacy. I consider myself an advocate no matter how I do it. So no matter whether it's practicing law or doing a a novel, doing a documentary, I consider myself an advocate. And so I'm right now producing and creating an e-TV show where I interview different people in the foster care entity. We're about to do a segment on disproportionality in foster care, probably sometime in June. And that's um, that has a national global platform. There are a lot of listeners in the United Kingdom and sort of these other places. So I really just go where I feel I'm led and I'm equipped or I can become easily equipped to pursue and fine tune a platform. Okay. And you mentioned disproportionality in foster care. Just for those who might not know that term, what are you referring to? So what happens there? Typically, disproportionality is basically, it's a cultural thing. And in particular, it focuses on brown and black children. So African-Americans, yeah, Latino-Americans. And so the statistics show that the representation within the foster care system is far greater. It far outweighs representation in population. So if the state's population is, say, 10 percent, there's a high possibility that the representation of that same African-American or Hispanic-American population in the system could be 50 percent. You know, I just heard a statistic in D.C. where there's about 50 percent African-Americans involved just in the population, but 80 to 90 percent of all systems, all the children in foster care are African-Americans. So that's disproportionate. It's disproportionate to population. And there's reasons that that happens. And so it's about bringing awareness, delving into that and bringing awareness. All right. And this TV show that you're working on, is it a local thing or if people who are listening wanted to watch that, can they? They absolutely can. So yes, it's through the E360 channel. And so it's a streaming TV service, basically. So all they would need is a computer, a phone, an iPad, you know, and they can stream in and listen live. And I'll make sure once we settle on the airing date, I will make sure that I get you those details. That'd be wonderful. Yes. And so it would be a matter of maybe adding a link to that under your podcast section on the Aging Out Institute page. So we could certainly add that when it's ready. Okay. Sounds good. 
Terrific. And then for those who are interested and you can find out more about the disproportionality and the maybe the root causes that you're going to be discussing, I would imagine. Yes, yes. The, the root causes and we'll talk to a few experts and, you know, how it manifests itself and why it's important to reverse. Absolutely. One thing that I was interested in hearing from you is what I have heard over the years in regard to young people in foster care, particularly as they're getting older, preparing to age out, maybe after they've aged out. I mean, not that every person at that age has a lawyer, right? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but sure. There are legal issues around aging out of foster care that young people just are not made aware of. They don't know their rights. They don't know how to fight for rights. And so I'm just wondering from your experience, what are those areas that might be the most lacking? Where are the gaps? And what advice would you give to people working with youth aging out of foster care to ensure that they have the knowledge to be able to get the legal representation that they need or at least become knowledgeable about the rights and so forth. So I don't know. It's I've never asked this question before. So sure. I'm kind of rambling. So please no, question. feel, no, feel free to <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, because we're it's all about just you know, empowering people through knowledge. So, you know, one of the things I find that oftentimes is unknown is that the services that foster children are receiving can actually expand beyond their aging out date. And they can even be extended oftentimes by request. So I think it's important for foster children or certainly their caretakers or their mentors or, or whomever. I think it's important to just, you know, very, very actively navigate through the child welfare system. That's the hardest thing to navigate because, you know, you don't always know where to go. And a lawyer, an attorney can help with that. It needs to be an attorney who's well-versed in child welfare and the Department of Child Services, Department of Human Health and Human Services, whatever it's called in your respective states. So that's one important thing. Do you know of any, and maybe yours is one of them, but do you know of any legal websites that provides a breakdown of things that people in foster care should know, legally speaking? Typically, the National Children's Bureau has got a lot of lists and a lot of contact information. So for every single state, there'll be a name of a person that's in charge of a particular program, plus their email address plus possibly a telephone number, and then possibly a website. So I would peruse through that. And they've got tons of different categories. So whether it's aging out or whether it's you know services or whether it's placement services or you know what have you, but they are a gatekeeper of information. So I would refer all of your listeners to the Children's Bureau National Gateway. Okay, I'm making a note of that now. We'll add that to the list of resources under your podcast as well. So in your work as an attorney, do you partner with a CASA organization in your area? I'm just wondering what that relationship might look like if you do. Yeah. So, you know, I've lived in several different states and I've gotten certified as a CASA volunteer in a couple of different ones. And yeah, so, you know, I love the CASA organization. I mean, I'm just here for CASA for sure. <laughs> I really, really am. So having, having said that, on the legal side, yes, we work with CASA workers, right? So the CASA worker is the voice of the child, as you know, and your listeners know. So, you know, so say there's a team meeting and you need representation from different angles. So you need the biological parents represented. 
the adoptive parents represented, maybe some kinship family represented, and the child needs to be represented. So typically, a CASA worker would sort of just be within those interdisciplinary meetings, certainly court sessions, they do their reports. So I work with them as it relates to adoptions. You know, we'll need a CASA report to help with the recommendation so that the judge can review and make his or her decision. Okay. And is it just one CASA organization based on where you are geographically speaking? Yeah, typically it is. And every county has a, so you've got your states and then every single county, well, not every single county, but most counties then have a CASA representation. So there, I think one time I did, believe it or not, I did a cumulative list and I think I got up to like 13,000 different CASA entities across the nation. But there's probably more. That was literally just going state by state and putting the word CASA in (laughs) and seeing if I could sort of figure out where the entities are. But yeah, it's just a matter of probably Googling CASA, C-A-S-A, and then whatever your state is or maybe even whatever your city is. And most of the organizations will have a way for you to come and do an information session or a telephone number that you can use to reach them and learn more about the program. Right. And people don't have to be lawyers to be a CASA volunteer. <laughs> no. And most volunteers are not lawyers, to be honest. Most are not. Often, and everyone is structured, every court system is structured differently. But oftentimes, there will be within the organization sort of a, an attorney that's either a guardian ad litem or maybe a CASA supervisor. But under them are all these volunteers because they need the volunteers to actually go into the homes. I would say, at least my experience is that most CASA workers are not volunteers. They're just people with kind hearts who have time and love to give, and they just want to give. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I've found, too, and the many individuals I've talked to who, who work with CASA. It's just, you know, you have to have a little bit of availability of time, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like it's, in, you know, people I know who are in CASA have full-time jobs. Oh, yeah. it's, they're able to fit in some hours to do the CASA volunteer work, even within a full-time job timeframe. So for anyone who's listening, you might be interested in being a CASA volunteer. You don't have to be a lawyer and you don't have to be, say, retired with all this time on your hand. You can still fit it in. That's right. So let me ask you this from your perspective. People who are working with youth who are approaching aging out of foster care, What advice would you give them to help them best prepare to age out of foster care? Yeah, you know, just one, to be patient and to understand that sometimes they may be very scared because they've had this safety net and they're starting to feel that maybe the safety net is going to go away. Empathy is really, really important to just really try to put yourself in their shoes, see how they may be feeling. There's this big world out here that they just may not be prepared for, and they think their services are going to get cut. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I think that's important. Hold their hand and walk them slowly through it. But you have to be diligent and find out as much. I really do believe that knowledge is power. Find as much as you can about services and then just get in contact with them. You know, maybe do some questions, some Q and A's. I think that's really important to have a plan so that when the aging out occurs, it's just a matter of executing the plan. Right. Do you find that most young people have adults, and I would say young people in foster care have adults in their lives that help them create a plan? you know, for their transition? Or do you believe that most young people do not have that benefit? I'd say a great 
deal of young people do not have that benefit, which is why it's important for you to have your podcast and why it's important to have these types of conversations because people can step up and help. You know, people always often ask, you know, how can I help? I can't be a foster parent necessarily, but maybe you could be a mentor. Maybe you could be a provider of information. Maybe you could do the due diligence for someone. You can do the Google research. You can just do that at home and then submit it to a CASA entity to maybe see if they'll put it on their website, right? Just, you know, if you have interaction because our foster children are in our communities, right? Whether we know it or not, they are. They're in our churches, they're in our our gyms, you know, our schools and all that. If you are aware that a child is a foster child, you know, see if you can navigate a relationship of trust whereby you can start sharing that kind of information. I mean, children just in general love mentors, right? You know, just if you take a true, genuine interest in them, then you can also feed them information that's going to help them elevate, even if it's guiding them to a service provider. Because as much effort as service providers make to promote and make themselves known, they still often go unknown and they're there ready to help. They have the tools, the manpower, the systems in place. So sometimes it's a matter of making that link. So, you know, that would pretty much be the advice I would give. You know, you say that so well and so eloquently. I have to ask, do you do any public speaking? Oh, that's so sweet. So, yeah, I do. I do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I present at conferences and, you know, and workshops and things of that nature. And certainly, I want to do a TED Talk and then just let it expand. Well, the kind of public speaking that you do, especially with the technology we have today, if people are listening, say, that work with organizations that provide services to young people who are aging out of foster care and they wanted to have you either speak to their staff or even speak to their students, what kinds of things could you talk about? You know, the great thing about working in child welfare for about 20 years is there are so many angles I could take, right? So if we want to talk about, you know, we could talk about navigating, you know, with an attorney, you know, what's that relationship like with an attorney? We can talk about disproportionality. We can talk about biological parents. You know, for about three years, I represented biological parents. We can talk about adoptions. We can just talk about empathy. We can talk about CASA workers. It just depends on what their needs would be, but those would be some of the topics that I could discuss. Generational traumas, you know, yeah. Well, let me just throw this out there. If anybody wanted to contact you about public speaking, where would they do that? How could they reach you? They could do a couple of things. One, they could go to my website, which is www.chavisfisher.com. And I tell people Chavis is spelled like Davis, but replace the D with the C-H. And (laughs) Fisher has no C. So C-H-A-V-I-S-F-I-S-H-E-R.com. Or they can email me at natalie at chavisfisher.com. Okay. And do you accept donations for the work that you do? Or is it all just voluntary? You know, for the work that I do, yeah, I would accept a fee if someone wanted to tender that, yes. Okay, so it's not like a regular donation type of nonprofit organization. Right. As I said, I don't have a 501c3, so they wouldn't get a tax write-off, and you know, <laughs> no, I don't have that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Probably good to put that out there just before people reach out yeah. to you. <laughs> oh, exactly. I can refer them to entities that I love, but yeah. Sure, sure. Awesome. Well, let me ask you this now then. There are a lot of opportunities in my mind where the foster care system could really make some improvements in how they support young people in foster care to get them ready to age out. 
I know there are a lot of extended foster care programs that exist in many, many states. And so that's great. But I know there are opportunities to even improve those. So I wanted to ask you from your perspective, what might be two or three areas where you could see opportunities for improvement? And what would you suggest that they do you know, yeah. to make those improvements? Well, I tell you what, the first thing I would say is have courageous conversations. I'll tell you this, I'm very impressed with the Indiana Department of Child Services because they host these listening sessions with former foster youth to hear about how their experience was in the system. And those conversations are not always easy or comfortable, but they're true and they can be raw, right? But they're true. And the only way that you can get better is to acknowledge reality. You have to listen and acknowledge it because that's how you can change it. So I think to host listening sessions for for former foster youth and biological parents, Right. Because, you know, even when a child is in the foster care system or ages out of the system, that doesn't mean that they're not going to have contact with their biological families, because oftentimes they do. Even when they're in our homes and we say, don't get on Facebook, don't do that. There's this curiosity. There's this thing inside, no matter how bad the situation was. So we find that happens a lot. So I think having conversations with biological parents and then you'll know what to do. You'll know what when you hear the same thing over and over different set of, you know, different set of people, but same themes. So that would be my overarching advice. Well, that's a good idea. In my mind, it's something that could easily be done mm-hmm. by the organizations, you know, the child welfare agencies that have oversight to be able to set up those conversations. And again, with the technology today, there's no reason why you couldn't have, you know, a large group together. You don't want too many because then it gets a little tough to, you know, hear everybody, but I don't know, 12, 15, maybe 20 people tops, bring them in for that conversation. Yeah, you could do that and they can use their phone and then you can have breakout rooms and people can just have smaller sessions of three or five to talk about whatever topic is and then come back. And then you start generating some really good substantive ideas for change. Yeah, exactly. It isn't just a complaint session. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, put the many different minds, you know, because you always come up with better ideas when you have a lot of different minds working on it toward a task of coming up with solutions. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And that was part of the impetus for me doing the documentary. So with the documentary, the system is the main character, not a particular story or a particular person. It's the system. We're studying the system and we're doing that through interviews. And so it's different people, different opinions, different experiences, but they all have a call to action at the end based upon their respective fields of interest or expertise or their life story. They all have a call to action and the call to actions are all different. So that's case in point, you know, bringing different voices together and you get the best total benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So I know one of the the challenges that I've seen, you know, come up over and over in conversations is just making sure that the young people have that relationship, right? That one of the key protective factors for young people is having a stable, supportive adult in their life. And so many young people in foster care do not have that. And there are a lot of mentor programs out there. There are. But there doesn't seem to be an effort in the foster care system itself to ensure that that happens. Is there an opportunity there 
where the system itself could try to provide that person. Because the social worker is great. I mean, the social worker does a lot of good things to try to advocate and make sure that young person is taken care of. But the social workers are so overwhelmed with their workload. So I guess what I'm asking is, is there an opportunity, do you see, to, to, I don't know, build in some other kind of mechanism to ensure that these young people have that supportive adult in their life? Absolutely. I think every child aging out should have a plan of action. And as part of that plan, there needs to be some sort of a relationship with an identified adult, whether that be an uncle, a grandmother, a neighbor, or a mentor who's already been vetted through Big Brothers, Big Sisters, or through this community program or that community program. That should just be like a mandatory line that needs to be filled out before we close this case. Absolutely. So then the question becomes, how do you make that happen? I've always been of the mind that in the foster care system, what is tracked is what's going to happen. Yeah. And so what's tracked is their roof over the young person's head. Are they being fed? Do they have a bed to sleep in? And are they you know, generally safe, physically safe? But I don't see a general process for tracking and ensuring that these young people are prepared to age out of foster care. So it just seems to me that if there was a system in place to track that as part of, you know, being a foster parent, even if it's just a matter of you've got to connect your young people with local organizations, even if that's all that they do, then you can ensure that the young people have a plan and that they have that relationship. But is that even possible? What do you think about that? Well, I think that's where your legislation comes into play. That's where you write to your legislatures or your lobbyists. I mean, there are many child advocates who just focus on witnessing at Senate hearings, certainly networking as it relates to child welfare, lobbying as it relates to child welfare. That's where you link to those persons. And if you don't, if you can't identify who that particular person may be, then it's absolutely your senators. I mean, you know, we have to you know, because what you want to do is have enough energy going that direction whereby a senator says, okay, I'll sponsor this bill. And they just kind of take it and run with it. But that's the only way it's going to be actually, one, implemented and two, just analyzed. That's the only way you can have accountability in the system if it's a mandate. Yeah, it would have to be a mandate. And of course, the analysis is very important because you would need to make sure that you have the resources to follow through on it. Because if you have a process that requires a plan of action and a mentor, you know, they're different relationships, but let's call it a mentor. Mm-hmm. And you don't do anything to follow up on it, then of course, you know, nobody will follow through, nobody will do it. So you need to make sure that you have the ability to follow up with that. And that might mean more resources. It might mean more social workers. I, I don't know exactly what it would require, but that analysis would unveil all of that. I think so. And it could be just shifting what social workers do, right? Anytime there's a requirement, we figure out how to get it done. We think smarter. You know what I mean? Maybe we need to be more efficient. Maybe we need to reorganize our organization. You know, it doesn't have to be more. It could just be different, you know? Yes. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. And you make me think of another question that I have. Let me ask this. I mean, you have had exposure to a lot of different elements of the foster care system. How young do you think people should start working with the youth in regard to life skills and making sure that they're ready to age out of foster care? 
Well, honestly, it's going to depend on the youth because I've seen some nine-year-olds who can handle the responsibility of doing their own dishes and maybe preparing simple meals, right? Macaroni and cheese from a box or something in the microwave, you know? So I think it's going to depend on the maturity of the child, but certainly by puberty, certainly by early teens, I think there needs to be a concerted effort. Right. So whether that's a program, a camp, right. Oh, we, you know, during the summer, we send our children to the YMCA or church camps or just whatever other camps, you know, we could have a camp session and it doesn't have to be formal. It could be a group of foster moms coming together and saying, matter of fact, I have two girlfriends who are doing this for their children and their children's friends. They're having sessions inside their home, teaching budgeting, teaching financial responsibility, like no credit card debt here, teaching how do you look for scholarships, right? Because that's an art and it could be a class all in and of itself, Oh yeah, right? So you don't have to have this sort of structured entity do it. I mean, anybody can create a program. So I think certainly by teens, you know, 12, 13, for sure. And if you have some more mature children, then go ahead and start giving them independent responsibilities because, you know, we're raising the children to leave. And so let's let them fly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think as young as you can, and I think middle school-ish is probably where you should start thinking about what are the right responsibilities and life skills that this age young person would typically learn. And let's give them some experiences. Let's make sure that they can have some a chance to practice those skills and to build them naturally and organically, just like any other young person would. Yeah, I love that. That would be ideal. But then you also have the challenge of young people going into the foster care system later. I went into the foster care system at 15. Luckily, I had a background of, you know, a lot of life skills preparation. So I was pretty much there. But so many young people haven't had the benefit of having been taught a lot of life skills. And so they come in late and then it's a tougher situation to be able to help them. Yeah, I agree. And particularly if they had 12, 13, you know, 14 homes, they don't have the continuity to even have that one person. They may have had for a short time one person, but then when that changes, it just becomes difficult. So that's when we rely on our community, right? That's when we rely on our service providers. Yeah. And that's where, again, I think with the technology we have today, it just seems like there has to be a way to have an online life skills curriculum. Oh, and, my and online, like social workers, you're assigned to little Joe or little Janet or whatever. And that young person, you're going to have that young person no matter where they go. Even if they move out of state, you are their social worker. I know that's not how the system is set up. I know that's not how it's budgeted. But technologically speaking, we could do that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we could do that. And even if the system itself wasn't set up that way, the service providers could do that easily. Very, very easily, you know, just yep. and the children are, you know, because of virtual learning, there's not going to be as much resistance to sitting in front of a, you know, a laptop or their phone, however they're doing it. Right. So we've kind of done the boot camp part of it, you know, gotten rid of all of that, all those anxieties. And so it would just be easy to implement. I think especially now after our experience in covid so many young people are so used to working with others online that it just, I feel like we need to strike while the iron is hot and start thinking about how can we use technology to make life more consistent for the young people in foster care. I agree. Now's the time. Now's the time. So 
the question is, who does it? That's right. <laughs> where does the money come from? <laughs> where does the money come from to do it? Yeah. And it could be, you know, many somebodies, you know. Right. But even if it's just a group, you know, you could start off small. I mean, you know, that's kind of what we do. We kind of start off small and then build from there. So it could be a group of five foster moms putting their thoughts and energies together to create a program or someone else could create a program and you just use that program. And then you just use the, just the kids that you have, that you're caring for, the kids in your home. See, it doesn't have to be elaborate, right? You can just start small and then have a whole bunch of small cells and just let it build. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, what pilot programs are all about, right? You start small, see what works, tweak it, make it better, and then share it with somebody else who could then start using it and benefit from the learnings of the pilot and so on and so on until it spreads and takes hold. Yeah, I love that. I I see it. I see it. (laughs) Someone's going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Well, What would you say is your greatest area of passion in the work that you do? If you had to, I mean, it might be tough to pick one area that you're particularly passionate about, but I'm just curious, you know, what really motivates you the most in the work that you do? Mm, I'm smiling from ear to ear. It's anything centered around the children. I guess maybe the adoption side, right? Because you know, by the time you have that hearing, you've gone through a lot, you've seen a lot, you've helped the families navigate through a lot. And then there's this beautiful hearing. I enjoy that. But for the kiddos who don't get adopted, you know, I enjoy when they come back to me and say, hey, Miss Natalie, guess what? I say, what? They say, I got accepted to Northwestern, you know, or I got accepted to wherever, NYU. And they have a plan to actually go, you know, so just watching someone overcome some pretty serious challenges, not only does that excite me, but it makes me have a lot. First of all, I know that their resilience is going to carry them through. So it just makes me know that they are on the proper trajectory to just not only change their own lives, but to help change the lives of others just by the way they are moving through their own. I enjoyed that. I mean, I've been doing this long enough where I get to have the circles sort of come back and say, hey, mm-hmm. what's going on with me? And, you know, so I, I enjoyed that, those follow-up stories. Well, it sounds like you are really, I would say, I'll use the word passionate again, about the work that you do. And that is really exciting. And I find that over and over and over again with people who work with young people in foster care who are aging out of foster care, that it's just Whatever the background, there's just this drive, this motivation, this passion around working with these young people, helping them succeed. And it just seems like, I don't know, that being burned out doesn't happen that much in this. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it just seems like the passion and motivation is there and it keeps people buoyed throughout their career. It does. It really does. You know, and like me, you made a good point. You know, sometimes burnout does happen, but sometimes that just means, okay, you just turn left instead of right. So you can still do the work, but you just have to find it because in life, you change in life. You know, you, you have children you're of your own, you know, you have other things going on. So things have to often shift, but there's so much that can be done within the realm of children who are aging out and just the foster care system in general, that you can make those shifts. And, you know, I firmly believe in leaning in the direction you're bent. And what I have found is I have met tons of people 
who are truly, you know, sort of called. I mean, this is where they're supposed to be. And that's how I feel about myself. And I know that to be true because of it energizes me. Instead of taking a lot of energy, it gives me energy. And so I, I'm bent that way. So I lean into it. You know, I don't ask why. You know, I have no idea why, but it just is. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's kind of my approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly the way I see it too. If the work you're doing gives you energy, then I think you've come across something that you might want to stick with. Yeah, <laughs> that's golden nugget right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me see here. I'm going to ask another, what advice do you have question? But instead of thinking about the folks who are working with young people in foster care, let's say we have some older foster youth listening to this podcast. I hope we do. (laughs) I don't know if we do. I hope we do. What advice would you give them either in general or maybe from a legal perspective as they're looking at turning 18, maybe 21 and aging out of foster care and going out on their own? What advice would you give the young people? First of all, that you're not alone. You know, you're not alone. You have a whole wealth of an entity, an organization, and a whole system that cares about your success. And it's important to know that and that you are worthy of success. It's important to know that too. And it's important now for you to start on your own tapping into resources, doing the research, asking the questions. It's important to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Young people have to learn how to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And I think some people feel that they have to give young people everything that they need. And I'm not talking about just in foster care. I'm talking about anywhere, you know, anywhere in this world, in this country, if you just give the kids what they need, they'll be fine. Right. Right. You know, whether it's, you know, the creature comforts, if it's money, if it's, you know, whatever, that they'll be fine. Actually, maybe not so much. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because we all have to become independent right? Unless you're going to live, you know, with some kind of parental figure for the rest of your life, (laughs) (laughs) the vast majority of us are going to be, have to be independent. And what that means is you have to learn how to do things for yourself. And to do things for yourself, you often have to advocate for yourself. And so that's, that's one thing that I would certainly encourage all of the folks who are working with young people aging out of foster care to do is to ensure that you're teaching self-sufficiency and also self-advocacy. That's powerful. That's so powerful. I don't know if I have the answer as to how to do that. I've got a lot of podcasts you can listen to. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We're taking one little step at a time and then there's some good advice on the podcasts. That's right. That's right. I never claim to be the expert, but I know a lot of people who are doing great work. And so I highly recommend, you know, looking into those, but yeah, I think that self-advocacy is so important. And, you know, even the CASA workers, they are the young person's advocate, Right. I would think there are probably many CASA volunteers who are helping the young people, you know, learn how to speak for themselves, say, in front of a judge. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then if they get close enough to the student or the young person, you know, how to speak up for yourself in a school setting now in a different setting. And sometimes those relationships with the CASA workers last way beyond the child's time within the welfare system. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Let me ask you this. I'm going to wrap back around to the work that you do as an attorney. 
And you said that you also have been a CASA volunteer in the past. Do you do any other kind of side projects to work with youth? Yeah, so pretty much the CASA volunteer, you know, my work as an attorney, I try to raise awareness, like with the documentary and the book. So I, those are the sorts of things that I do. I go around, you know, the country speaking. But yeah, but in terms of on-hands projects, I support a lot of on-hands projects, but you know, I don't have a 501c3 or anything like that myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. Well, I see that we are coming up toward the end of our time together. And I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. I'm just wondering, and I think we kind of touched on this before when I was asking you about your passion. Is there anything else about the work that you do, specifically legally speaking, right, Mm -hmm. that you do, that you particularly love? Uh, You'd mentioned the adoption process, but is there anything else that you particularly love about the work that you do that you could share? You know, I do. I enjoy helping clients navigate through the system because it's really tough to navigate through, right? So, you know, like you said, caseworkers are often overloaded. So what that may translate to is having more than one caseworker or, you know, maybe a file not being as complete as it needs to be. So what I enjoy is I enjoy helping my clients sort of navigate through the holes, <laughs> the right, the parts that they can't do on their own. Like without the knowledge, they're just not going to be able to do it. And I, I kind of consider that too when I give my presentations on like, you know, sort of legal specific issues. I just kind of want to, you know, help make you better than you were before you entered the room or the Zoom room now and just fill in those gaps. And yeah, you know, this the manual kind of says this, but you know, practically speaking, this is kind of what it is. And this is how you can get around that, you know, so I enjoy empowering my clients. Excellent. It's kind of like in the same vein as the self-advocacy in a sense. Yeah. 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 And you give them the knowledge, you know, it's, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating to, I'll just say, maybe feel beat up by the system, right. Or just, it's, that's frustrating. And it just doesn't have to be. There's ways around all that. Right. And it's tough when you're that age. It's so hard to see, you know, five, 10 years down the road. Yeah. It's really, everything is now. Now, yeah. And if, <laughs> if life is frustrating now, it's hard to see beyond that. And it's a difficult time for young people. I remember it being difficult at 18. Oh, yeah. You're <laughs> supposed to be. <laughs> So, so I really appreciate the work that you do to help these young people. And, and it's just great. It's the first time I've had an opportunity to speak with an attorney who really focuses specifically on an area of foster care law. And so I really uh, am grateful to you for having reached out to us actually to participate. And I'm really excited about the things that are going out there, the novel, the documentary, the television show. I, I'm very excited to put that out there so people also can follow up and read or watch or whatever. Yeah, very good. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me. This has been a very enjoyable conversation, you know, a needed conversation. You know, we're just sort of pouring, you know, our hearts and our as much knowledge as we have for a very, very good cause. And I know it'll reap very positive benefits. Oh, I appreciate that. And I do hope so. I just, I hope as people listen to these podcasts that they glean some information, some nuggets that can be helpful to them in the work that they do with young people. Or if we have young people listening, that you walk away with maybe a positive nugget of information that you can take with you and benefit from. Yes. Yes. That's so, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thanks again. 
I really appreciate it, Natalie. And I do wish you all the best with the work that you are doing moving forward. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. All right. For those who have listened to the podcast to the end, thank you very much. We put the podcast out every two or three weeks or so, and you can find them pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts these days. You could also go to our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and look for the podcast page from our menu. So thank you very much. Until next time. 